Mindfulness Mode 511. The way Thich Nhat Hanh practices walking meditation is kind of unique. I think he's the only person so far who's written an entire book about walking meditation. I have the author with me today, Gary Gatch. Gary, are you in mindfulness mode today? Bruce, I'm in mindfulness mode ultra right now. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I'm excited to talk to you about your book. First, I'd like to ask you about mindfulness and what it means to you. Uh, Well, in the book, you know, I have a lot. Lot of different definitions because it's you know like it's like love or democracy or something you know really or peace kind of um something everybody comes to i think for their own definition of it for me i'll give you i'll, I'll put it this way when i started out in my career i was a writer who was also interested in eastern spirituality and haiku and so forth And now my career is mindfulness, out of which writing and haiku and various things are all practices. So I don't make any separation between mindfulness and life and and me. Mm, I like that. So that's what it is for me. It's just all one. (laughs) Let me me share a little bit about you, Gary, with... My listeners, Gary Gatch is a San Francisco-based author who was educated in mindfulness by, get this, Thich Nhat Hanh. So that is pretty incredible. Gary has written a number of books, including his most recent, like I said, Pause, Breathe, Smile. The subtitle is Awakening Mindfulness When Meditation is Not Enough. While living his life as a writer, Gary has worked at various jobs to make ends meet, including as a bookshop clerk, editor-in-chief, hospital administrator, journalist, stevedore, and typographer. So you've done lots of different things. And now you are still spending a lot of time writing. Am Am I correct with that? Am I spending a lot of time? Well, I've just finished a new manuscript, so I'm spending a lot of time with the writer's practice of sending out uh, copies and writing letters, sending out query letters to publishers, but I'm still writing. I wrote a 10-minute poem for peace this week because I was invited to a reading. So, yeah, I, I don't have any division between what I write as a book or a poem or a letter, you know, I'm always writing. Right. Writers write. Writers do write. That's true. And you share your poems on a weekly podcast. Isn't that true? Yeah. Bob Thurman has asked me to provide a poetry segment because he wanted to make his show more kind of diverse, you know, like Mm -hmm. Prairie Home Companion or something. And I've been doing that for over a year now. We have 30 poetry segments, and that's a great delight. 
Yeah, that must be a great delight. Now, I know in your book, you wrote a chapter called Motivation, the Game Changer. Mm. And you asked the question, what's my motivation for mindful awakening? And I found this section of your Mm. book really impactful. And you said, however you frame it, motivation is a simple lever that can move your world. So how can we do that if we don't feel as motivated as we want to? Mm. Well, you know, now that I hear it, I might have said fulcrum. (laughs) (laughs) But nevertheless, I'm glad you asked that because it's a really important and maybe often overlooked question um, of, of why. You know, a lot of people go, who, and they get an examination of the self or, you know, what, uh, and so forth. But the why underlies all the intentions which we uh, engage with our pausing and responding rather than reacting. But underneath all that, there's a core to the practice that... I think it's kind of essential at some point to stop and say, why am I doing this? And in unpacking that question of motivation, what comes up centrally, I think, it's kind of a foundational way of looking at it is, am I doing this for me only? I mean, if you're not doing it for you, if you're not practicing loving kindness for yourself, then your loving kindness is not complete. But if you're only practicing loving kindness for yourself, then it's not the meta meditation where you include anonymous people, difficult family, you know, the whole range of human beings. So there's this question of your motivation in relation to yourself, the world. And you can kind of look at it like, well, I don't don't think I'm going to change the world by doing this. You know, you might only make it worse by trying to do that. But if you look, this is my motivation. If you look at it as a way of engaging yourself and the world as one, then my motivation becomes very clear. I want to awaken from my mindless behavior that I've inherited from 50,000 years of Homo sapienhood. And I also want to live in a world, I don't want to be an awakened being in a world where everybody's stepping on my toe. And I want to improve the quality of life of other people who, reasons of causes and conditions, aren't doing so well and or haven't contacted their own sense of value. And so for me, that's my motivation, is, is, is kind of a day-by-day healing and transformation of all of it. But If you don't go through that process, it's fine, but I think eventually you might, because then it can clear the path of a lot of things, for example, of meditating to gain something. When people think they want to get something out of meditation, well, that's fine if you are getting something, but continuing down that path can lead to a trap that many tigers have gotten caught in. Mm where you're calculating and you're, you're scheming and you're just building up this ego that you want to get rid of. Right. So motivation helps clear the path 
so that you have a really good understanding of who you are on this path and what the path is. Gary, tell us the first time you met Thich Nhat Hanh. The first time I saw Thich Nhat Hanh was the second time he came to the United States. And I'd heard of him, of course, but I'd never seen him. I didn't know very much about Vietnamese anything. You know, I'd been familiar with Japanese, a little Chinese. And at the Berkeley, no, it was at the Martin Luther King Jr. Auditorium in Berkeley. I remember it very well. I joined a very large audience and we're sitting there. And then monks and nuns come out on the stage and take the stage for about 15 minutes. And it dawned on me then that Thich Nhat Hanh is his community. That these monks and nuns and the people in the audience who were monks and nuns and not monks and nuns represent this thing called community, which is sometimes overlooked in the practice. And then when he came on stage and everybody was like, oh, there, there he is, I felt an affinity. I can't explain it. And I've had this every time I've encountered him since. And just this kind of warm feeling as well as light, like, you know, coming home. Mm. So I said to myself, well, yeah, these are people I could practice with for the rest of my life. You know, it probably isn't perfect as me, but, you know, we're making the best of it. And we have a beautiful teacher. So that was my first encounter. And you started meditating when you were eight years old. Yeah. Well, How did that you know, there, <laughs> there were little, I, this is before your time, <laughs> but there were little blue books, as they were called, that came out of Chicago. And they had 3,000 and they had a catalog. And they were either a nickel, a dime, or a quarter. And you could get uh, the Three Musketeers or how to home repair your car. And there was one on yoga. And I'd had, which is not uncommon, this mystic vision, whatever you call it, I'd had this flash as a young person about the nature of the universe. And I'd seen a book a couple of years later by Alan Watts that explained it to me. That it, it wasn't in terms, what I'm saying is it wasn't in terms of Judeo-Christian creator deity uh, concepts at all, which neither here nor there, that it was about the unimpeded interpenetration of all things, which is a Buddhist concept. I said, well, this is, this is what I saw. And this must be, you know, how I resonate as a human being with the universe. So I should know more about it. And there was this little book on uh, yoga, and it had a section on breathing, meditation. So I'd been aware of my breathing, you know, as a practice, as an early uh, uh, human being. Now, fortunately, young people of the same age are being taught this in school. Yes, they are. <laughs> right, right. So. And did you continue to meditate every day from that point on, or was it sporadic or what? No, I had the sense that this was good. And I thought, it, you know, that when I didn't do it, I didn't feel as good about, you know, what was going on in my life. So I saw the benefits of it. And so I took time to, you know, make the time to uh, do this. Right. And, and so then did you have Thich Nhat Hanh as a teacher? Did you take courses with him? How did that work? So that's a good question. Thich Nhat Hanh became an exile in the United in the West in France primarily due to his nonpartisan pacifist stance during the war in Vietnam. And a book of his got published, another book of his got published. He soon became quite famous mm -hmm. 
but this fame factor precluded his having one-on-one teachings the way Zen teachers usually do. Also, because his Zen includes Vipassana, mindfulness, which doesn't necessarily have as much of an emphasis on the one-on-one with your teacher, did you study your koan, what's your answer kind of thing. More about, you know, if if you're in the presence of your teacher in the community, that's a teaching. There have been occasions where I have been one-on-one, mostly by accident, that were very profound, as has been the case of everybody I know. And I guess the seal on my being always in touch with what it is that uh, we say Thai, when we say refer to Thich Nhat Hanh as, a, as an abbreviation, it means, you know, teacher. What Thai means to me is something that is always there without my asking, where is he? <laughs> is it, did he come to this session? Will I see him? You know, is he in this country? Is he in another country? He's made that very clear, and I've understood it very deeply. You offer some really helpful tools in your book, visualizations. And uh, I found it quite interesting. Imagine your nostrils are the gates of a castle. Or imagine your breath is a saw. Did you learn yeah. some of these visualizations from Thich Nhat Hanh? Those aren't from him, though, but those are traditional. Right. You know, I mean, part of my practice might be to read other things that he's read or sure. studied. There's a third in there that's modern that I made up. <laughs> Would you share that with us? I can't remember. Oh. I'd have to look it up. Oh. Do you have the book? I, or I, I do have it. the book. Yeah, I do have the book. Yeah, I, I can and those were it. on page 89. Oh, thank you. Yeah. While we're talking. Yeah, those so were on page So while I'm 89. groping for my copy. Uh, ooh, where is it? And the copy? third one that you mentioned was if you're, think of your lungs, if you laid them flat, they would cover the size of a tennis court. Did you make that one up? <laughs> no, I didn't make that up, but that's a pretty contemporary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty interesting, too. Yeah, I tried balancing or mixing traditional with, you know, contemporary. Right. You know, being innovative and creative is part of the practice, right? Definitely. So. You even included a song in here by Thich Nhat Hanh, which was <laughs> great. And especially since I was a music teacher for a long time, I really identified with that. In, wow. out, deep, slow. That's <laughs> slow, a great song. Calm, ease, smile, release. That song sums up one of the two primary foundational mindfulness teachings that come down to us from the Buddha, the full awareness of breathing. Mm-hmm. And because it's a song and because we can sing it together, and I don't mean you and I right now, but because people can, singing itself is a regulation of breath as you know, yes, and a focusing of the mind on the words. And singing in a group is something that, you know, probably most of the listeners like me would say, no, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. But the trick is, as I've learned, you sing with your ears, which means you don't want to hear your voice soloing over a chorus of everybody else, like the Mormon tabernacle choir and a diva. So true. But on the other hand, but on the other hand, you don't not want to hear your voice in the stream. Right. And when you can do that 
it's wonderful. It really is. And I, I loved teaching singing because oh. I taught my children the love of singing so that when they graduated from eighth grade, they they loved singing and they didn't have hangups about it for the most part. I mean, they, they yeah. mostly loved it. They sang in choirs and we sang all kinds of music. And it makes me sad that that's not the case in a lot of educational settings these days, but uh, and I'll tell you too, Bruce, I had two years study with a teacher who was the 15th in his lineage of Hasidism, Jewish mysticism. Okay. And singing and dancing were very much part of the practice. So I'm reminded of the haiku. The birds look at the people with pity wondering why they don't have any time to sing and dance. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, that analogy. Yeah, that's, we need to make time to sing and dance. We absolutely do. Uh, you say just a faint smile can move the oh. needle. You say it only takes two muscles in your face to do a half smile. Never underestimate the power of a simple smile. So what is the power? <sighs> yeah, my editor, that's, a, that's the six, almost the $64,000 question. My editor said, you're going to have a hard time with that one. Yeah. Pausing people will get, breathing, yeah. yeah it's and women, by the way, it's a tough one because women have an issue. You're like, you know, why don't you smile? You look so beautiful when you smile. <sighs> one is just a physiology that it is like, just as breathing with awareness will calm the vagus nerve as a scientific fact, lifting just a, a corner of the mouth or two, maybe not even visibly, changes the perceptions of the brain such that the executive core in the front goes more online. It's more about, I'm in charge here. Nobody owns my mind but me. This is my experience is up to me and I'm responsible for it and I'm taking that autonomy. And that's pretty incredible. It is. The second thing is, right. The second thing is why do it if you don't enjoy it? Which may seem redundant or obvious, but I'll tell you, I have been in <laughs> groups where everybody's just kind of like, dour or serious or you know and it's meant to be light and 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 you know like the line for this one you might like what students remember chopin telling them the most often lightly yes yes and i played <laughs> i played a you lot know, of chopin on the piano and yes that's something it's, he's it's, known for you know, yeah so there's the, there's the autonomy, there's the happiness, and then there's, I guess there's more, but just for the purpose of now, there's a way that an inner smile has a power both inwardly and outwardly. I can, with my inner smile, which I'm doing right now, smile and ask myself, am I feeling stage fright or am I feeling calm? Oh, I feel a little nervous. I'm smiling at my stage fright. Okay, stage fright. Now my stage fright is under my arm and it's less of a, you know, yeah. and I'm smiling at it and I'm making contact with it and I can contact my lungs. I can contact my 
pancreas, you know, this, and also I can smile at a cloud. And when I'm breathing with the smile at the cloud, the cloud kind of reveals itself herself to me. And with people, how many times have you walked down the street and seen someone with a nice smile and you smiled back? And then you shared this smile and you had the sense of like, I'm going to carry this throughout the whole day. Absolutely true. Right. Yeah. So um, in a nutshell, those are three of the, and the fourth is, the fourth is that because this section of the book is about wisdom, mm-hmm. very often people will say, well, you know, you can't put it in words. And so you, it's just the Mona Lisa smile. But that's kind of a cop out if you just do that. So <laughs> I did write the whole thing, but I did it with a kind of a smile. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you for giving me a chance to clarify that. Yeah. No, I appreciate hearing it from you. And you included a section called mindful walking. And I think that oh, yeah. walking very much can oh, be yeah. a mindful experience, but let's hear your thoughts on it. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, since as a young man, a little boy, actually, I'd been, you know, practicing my breathing and sitting and getting grounded and getting centered and being aware I could be the whole universe and being aware I could drop out myself and do all of these wonderful yogic things. I don't think I ever understood mindful meditation until I did walking meditation with Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm-hmm. And later I did some research and I found in the history of Chinese Buddhism, there were more reports at monasteries of people reporting awakening experience doing walking meditation than sitting. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and I can attest to that. Walking meditation for me just wow, opened it up for me. Actually. It wasn't with Thich Nhat Hanh. The first time is with the Veterans Retreat that his you know, organization that we've sponsored. So walking meditation. Um, I guess the quickest way I could kind of, you know, parse it is if sitting meditation is a way of being grounded and centered and in your mindfulness mode, walking meditation puts it in action in the world. And putting it in action in the world is a meditation. And that includes everything around you, but first, Mother Earth beneath the soles of your feet, and being aware that we carry Mother Earth within us, as we're connecting with Mother Earth outside of us. And then hearing all the wonders of Mother Earth, Mm. We we walk outdoors in my sangha, so it's the surf and the birds and kids on bicycles. So the mind has more immediate contact with perceptions and sensations than one might if one's sitting alone in a room, quietly in a dark corner. But they become things that one connects with fully and doesn't hold on to the same way that we don't hold on to feelings, perceptions, and thoughts when we're sitting. And because you're not going to fall down and you're going to concentrate on your walking, you the concentration factor isn't something you turn on or off. It's there by the very fact that you are enjoying what it means to walk very um, fully. And last 
you know, the, the takeout, just if people are listening, have never done this. The way Thich Nhat Hanh practices walking meditation is kind of unique. I think he's the only person so far who's written an entire book about walking meditation. And the simplest way to practice it at home is to imagine your left foot and your in-breath as one, and your right step and your out-breath as one. And if you do that out somewhere where you feel free, you know, your path is okay, maybe around in a circle for 20 minutes. Within that 20 minutes, either the first time or the second time, oh, something happens. There's a kind of a flip when you coordinate your steps to your breathing rather than your breathing to your steps, which is informal meditation. And so do you prefer walking meditation over sitting meditation? you know, the way is easy for one who doesn't have preferences, right? But, um, you know, we, in my group, we sit and we walk and we talk, which is Dharma sharing or sharing our practice. And I, I love them all. And I think they all communicate, intercommunicate to each, with each other. Uh, but as I mentioned, it has been a very formative and foundational practice in my life. And I know too, that if I'm Oh, all wound up and bound up in myself over something that's just I can't get my mind off of. More than sitting, a walking meditation will will let me know what I need to do. Very interesting. So it's like, you know, the right tool for the right job. <laughs> well, we've talked about walking. Yeah. We've talked about smiling, but we really haven't talked about pausing. Let's talk about that aspect of All mindfulness. Right. All right. So what Do you are you? Give it a prompt? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. why is it so important for us to pause? I mean, in in the in North America, we don't really pause. Most of us, <laughs> so many of us, it's just go, 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 and sleep. Go, 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 go. Next day and sleep, and we're missing something, right? Even in Canada, even in Canada, that's sometimes oh, the case. Although we I wouldn't say help. that's true for me, but it is true for a lot of people <laughs> I meet. Yeah, no, whenever I'm in Canada, I always enjoy the kind of there's a, a, a more friendly quality to everyday life. So, but I, yeah, it's true about America, but let's, let's be, um, Let's be deep and profound and look as human beings, you know, people have always been reactive. It's our nature as a species that got us out of the jungle right? to survive snakes and pterodactyls and, and spears and who knows what. And so we've, as our nervous system and our mind and our humanity has evolved, we haven't gotten rid of those uh, habit, that habit energy. We're still running on that habit energy. It's our karma, if you will. So we need to learn how to be less reactive. And the famous quote is that if you put a space, just a little space between the stimulus that you would react to and a response, in that space is your freedom. 
the freedom to respond rather than react is our freedom and it's a spaciousness we have we see more choices rather than what you know my gut instinct told me to do especially if it was a difficult un unbeneficial or harmful kind of reaction like if somebody's bullying me for example well i want to fight back and then i'm trying to put out the fire with gasoline oh boy that usually doesn't work <laughs> you can't throw a coal at someone you hate without being burned no you why can't. hate you know you got to drop the hate so the pausing is an opportunity to evaluate assess I think the, the word is discern what would be beneficial for myself and that which I'm in, encountering in this present moment. So that pausing, you could also call it stopping, which is a little more, I, I rewrote the book. There was, you know, I don't know, uh, 12 drafts. And one of them was stop breathe, smile. But I realized stop sounded a little too dicty, you know, right. yeah. <laughs> a little too um, do this, do that. Mm -hmm. um, and mama don't allow, if you, you know. Yes. So yeah. I made it pause and I hear more people are now saying pause. So, okay. Um, and it's amazing how many people you hear saying this now in so many places that people are getting this idea that if we give ourselves these little let's look at it this way these little vessels of light and we're taking these little vessels of light and instilling them in ourselves and putting them in action then we get more and more able to be with the light in what we do so pausing is um a way of building more and more of a reservoir in your practice and one thing I need to say <laughs> is along with this sense of the wisdom of non-dualism, which is the smiling part, without a practice of intentionality and relationality, mindfulness is great, but only so far. Mm. Eventually you're gonna it's gonna mean coming up against why aren't I developing myself as a person? I'm, I'm calm and I'm centered and okay, but in these situations, I lose it and I don't get any better. And how can I heal my trauma or whatever it is? Mm -hmm. the, the pausing part, along with the wisdom of the impermanence of life, the interconnectedness of life, and the non-dualism of life, together with meditation make the whole package you mentioned bullying do you have a story uh, that you can share with us about bullying whether were you ever bullied <laughs> or were you ever a bully or a situation where mindfulness would have made a difference mm. there was a bully at uh, elementary school and i just couldn't believe what he was doing and this was an elementary school and i slowly 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 watched him until i found a time where i saw him bullying and i went up to him and i shoved him and i said you've got to stop that but i realized later that that wasn't good because i was bullying him so now did he stop yeah he did 
I mean, you know, he did. He kind of like realized that they couldn't get away with it without somebody because teachers weren't doing it. Right. They weren't on the they weren't on the the sandboxes and things. No, no. They were having lunch. Sure. Um, fast forward. I have a bully in my life. Oh. That took me understanding bullying. And what that meant was it's it's like the the pausing to smile and get insight and discern and look deeply into the nature of suffering to understand I learned one hurt people hurt people. Yes. You know, if someone is causing great suffering, they can't contain their own suffering. They can't deal with it. Yeah. There was one. And then two, I did a little research and I found out bullies think that they're doing it for your own good. Mm. Or some, some do. do. In my yeah, case, some do. In my case, that's been the case. So, you know, it's taken me time to kind of unpack these difficult emotions. Mm -hmm. Meta meditation has helped a great deal. I don't know if you've had a guest who's talked about meta meditation, but you will. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, without the 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 saga, uh, but being personal in my own life. It's of tremendous value to me to see that I've been able to transform, to heal and transform my own reactions so they're more skillful responses, and that I can apply that in other situations, whether it's other people who are experiencing that kind of behavior being done to them or, you know, in other situations. Why don't you and I you talk about meta meditation for a second? Are you now or have you ever? <laughs> I haven't had a guest <laughs> talk about it yet. So this is a great opportunity for you to introduce it. Uh, Sharon Salzberg introduced it to me at a three-day retreat. And I consider Sharon the queen of meta meditation. She studied it with some masters from Southeast Asia. And she brings it to the West impeccably. Mm. Often I offer it uh, after a meditation, you know, it's grounding and so forth. But sometimes I've gone into corporate situations and I've just offered, you know, like a five minute meditation and then we go into meta. And it has uh, like two parallel tracks or, or sets. Um, the first set are these ways of, <clears throat> excuse me. Ways of looking at true love, because true love is like we said in the beginning, <laughs> there's so many definitions. It's like, you know, you got to see little ways it means what it means to you. So if it's like light, you think of it in terms of colors and spectrum. And in the spectrum of this true love, which is also this feeling of tenderness, the feeling of loving kindness, the feeling of kindness, the feeling of mercy that um, you, you, don't, you can't really shower yourself with mercy or, you know, true love. It's kind of asking a bit much to do on a daily basis but to, or a regular basis, but to think of it in terms of uh, a spectrum. For example, being safe and secure, being happy, not just being safe and secure and healthy and wealthy, but in having the time to enjoy it. Maybe contacting our, our true enlightened nature and thriving in life. These are like four aspects of things that I would say 
if I love another human being that I would want them to have just as I would want me to have. Right. And so what the meditation is, that's the background. You start with you wish these upon yourself one by one and you visualize yourself as being safe and secure. And if you're not, why not? Right now in the present moment, you're safe and secure. Are you happy? Are you connected with your true nature? Are you thriving? And that could be like, you know, five minutes, say. And then you go through this a a couple more times. The second time you visualize what's called the neutral person, who's someone you see every day or every other day. You don't know their name. It could be this one, grocer, uh, someone on the bus you see very often. And you visualize them very clearly. You pick one Mm -hmm. and you, you do the meditation for them. And you visualize them as being, you know, safe and secure and happy and, and in touch with their enlightened nature and thriving. And you see that your heart is opening up even more. And you, you feel your heart opening up even, no, I think the second is your family, right? You do your family and friends, you do yourself, your family and friends, a neutral person, and then you do a difficult person. And in these days, it's not hard to pick, no. one, but you don't have to pick a political leader. Right. You pick someone who's just, <laughs> you could. Somebody that you know but you, in your life. Well, you could, you know, people do, you know, uh, whoever it is. And you find that in doing this with the difficult person, you, you connect with the fact that they, like any other human being, they want to be happy. They want to be safe. They want to be happy. They really do want to become enlightened in their way, and they want to thrive. They're just kind of doing it in an unskillful way. Right. You know, like a knife is not aware of anything. It's just being unskillfully. Yeah. And then the last part, by this point, I'm describing it, but you have to experience it is that you feel your heart opening up so much that you just continue the process and it goes something like this may and you you say the 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 four wishes to everyone like you and I and everyone who's listening to us now and everyone that's on our block and everyone in our city and everyone in our province and everyone in our country and the whole planet and all beings throughout the universe as you do that <laughs> I can't tell you how transformative and healing it is. In my group, we do it, you know, kind of like every season at least. Oh, that's great. And the reason we keep doing it is the reason we keep sitting and walking and talking is because everything's impermanent and you just got to keep doing it. <laughs> As we move forward in the interview, Gary. I'd like to ask you five quick answer questions. So the first one is this, and I can only imagine who it is. The question is, who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? Gosh, without hesitation, Thich Nhat Hanh is uh, one person. Yeah. You want more? I'm sure. Well, okay. <laughs> who would the second person be? Uh, my, the rabbi that I'd mentioned, Shlomo Karlebach, mm-hmm. for awakening my Jewish roots. Mm. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? Oh, gosh. (laughs) I'm a better person to be with. I used to be a very angry person. And when I stopped being such an angry person because mindfulness brought me to understand my emotions more, that's when people said, hey, you're nicer to be with. You used to be angry. Mm. (laughs) 
That's so great. You've been able to let go of so much of that anger. The third question is about breathing, and we've talked about it quite a bit. But can you sum up how breathing is so important to mindfulness? Yes. Right now, I'd like to invite you to join me in a mindful breath or two. Great. I'm breathing right now in this interview, and you are, and I'm inviting our listeners to, as we are aware of the in-breath in our nostrils and the freshness of the air and being alive and breathing out of just letting go. And let's do that just two more times. Doing it again, I'm feeling more of my body. Oh, this is good. It's good to be in touch with my body. Letting go, I'm feeling my ribs, my body settling down. I'm doing this one more time. I'm feeling more spaciousness to my, to my awareness and my body and this interview and letting go. Gosh, I could breathe with this forever. So now what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> You've answered the question. If you could recommend a book besides pause, breathe, smile, which is related to mindfulness, what would it be? One book? Well, I don't want to be facile. But if you don't have a blank artist sketchbook, journal, notebook, that's my recommendation. It's a wonderful book. You'll keep wanting to turn the pages. You'll never know what's going to happen next. And it'll be filled with all kinds of, of wisdom and insight that you'll want to go back to years later. Can you share an app which <laughs> helps with mindfulness? Oh, you mean, well, I got to tell you, I don't have a smartphone or anything, but I do have an app and it's something that rings every 15 minutes. It's a bell. It's a mindfulness bell. Okay. So it's a very soothing sound and it lasts about three breaths long. And when I hear it, what do I do? I stop, I pause, I let go of everything else that I thought I was doing. So is it a device that you got? It's an app. It's an app that you, there's, you know, there's many of them. I, inside, I, there's one. But you said you didn't I have use, a phone. So how do you have this working? So I have it on, I have a MacBook oh, that, okay. I, that I'm looking Got at it. you at right now. Got it. You, and if you want one, uh, so if you want apps, plumvillage.org is the website for Thai, for the, the community that I'm part of. Okay. And we have apps. We have made Plum Village apps for the Thich Nhat Hanh tradition. Great. Plumvillage.org. And we can all check out GaryGatch.com. That's G-A-R-Y-G-A-C-H.com. Check that out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. That gives me away. Well, it's so great to talk to you. It's so great to read your book and thank you for sending it to me and autographing my copy. I appreciate that. There's so much uh, wisdom between the covers of this book. Uh, there's nothing in the book that is, there's nothing in the book. Anything you're, anything you're saying is all in Bruce Langford. <laughs> Thank you so much for being my reader, my, my interviewer, for letting me be a, a guest on your wonderful show. Congratulations on your 500th anniversary. Yes. You are such a wonderful human being. Thank you for letting me in your life. Thank you, Gary. My pleasure. For being My pleasure. All the best to you. Bye now. 